Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company and want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.vc. The title sponsor for this season of Origins is Carta. This season is also supported by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Carta simplifies how startups and investors manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. They also offer fund administration, where you can see real-time data in the Carta platform and work with their team of experienced fund accountants. We've been happy customers with Carta for a few years now, and we're thrilled to have them as our title sponsor. Go to carta.com notation to get 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SBB's services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the beginning of Notation. They've helped us form both Notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Chad Byers is a co-founder and GP at Sousa Ventures, a seed stage fund based in San Francisco. Sousa has been fortunate to partner with the likes of Robinhood, Flexport, Andela, and Newfront Insurance. Outside of the office, he geeks out on recreational sports, music, and video games. What's up? Stoked for this. <laughs> Welcome, Chad. Um, I'm really excited to do this with you. Yeah, actually. this is awesome. Um, in addition to being uh, uh, a VC that we respect out west, uh, you're also a friend. You're also a very uh, small but important uh, LP in notation. Yeah, I was wondering if we're going to do full Which disclosure. Which is very exciting. That. I think we do full, ex- <laughs> I agree. full disclosure. I agree. That's smart. Um, a good place to start. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, where you grew up, all that good stuff before cool. venture. First of all, thanks for having me. This is the best way to spend a Friday, geeking out on VC. Yeah. Uh, so I was born in San Francisco in 1987. Um, was raised in the city till I was six. Had an older brother, Blake, who was two years older than me. San Francisco was awesome. You know, I remember going to the California Academy of Sciences whenever my parents could take me. I loved like, the outdoor stuff. Um, and so when I was seven, my parents moved us down to the South Bay. So mm-hmm. we grew up near Stanford University near Palo Alto. Um, and pretty much had the most idyllic, you know, childhood ever. Right. We were playing outside a ton. And then obviously, like, I think like most kids, um, my brother and my first kind of foray into tech was video games. So, yep. Uh, Sega Genesis came out in 1988. So I remember when we were super young, we were playing that. And then there was actually a failed system called 3DO that came out. Didn't make Never it very long. that one. Started in 91. Okay. Um, and actually funny story. It was the founder of EA, Trip Hawkins, who had left EA, and he was mm. going to start this console company called mm. 3DO, and they made some pretty sick games, mm. uh, but ended up failing. So uh, Blake and I played, my brother and I played a ton of video games growing up, and it was uh, it was an awesome childhood. I don't remember that one. I did play my dad's Atari at one that point. Was, that, that was, was even like, before yeah, Sega Genesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like, I think, yeah, one of the OG yeah, consoles. Yeah. yeah. Um, I played Sega Genesis, Sonic the Hedgehog, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so you got into tech through video games. Yep. Um, you grew up in a tech family. Yep. Right? Um, your dad, as far as I know, was one of the co-founders of Kleiner Perkins. Yep. So yeah, right? the, the backstory there is uh, my dad, Brooke, grew up in Georgia, you know, classic tech epicenter in the 60s. Right. Um, <laughs> just kidding. I ended up going to Georgia Tech doing double E. And then um, really didn't love the South, so moved out to uh, to California for GSB. Okay, you went to San Francisco. Business School. School. Yeah. And uh, had some summer jobs. I remember one story. He's like working down in LA in between his business school years. He goes, he's working at this like uh, manufacturer of, of airline parts for some reason. He's like double EME stuff, right? 
end of the summer, the guy's like, you know, my dad's like, oh, I'm really interested in coming back next year. And his manager looks at him, he's like, don't. Don't, don't <laughs> right. come back. It's good manager. You're terrible. That's good summer. advice. So needless to say, after he graduated, he was trying to figure out what to do. And um, just like, you know, luckiest thing ever. And, and he always brings up how, how luck is important in life. Meet some of the people that are the early days of venture in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. This is early 70s. Most of these people had spun out of the semiconductor businesses. Right. Um, so people like Arthur Rock. And then obviously the other founding partners of Kleiner gave him a shot. He was... Who are, the, was, who are the original founders of Kleiner? So Kleiner, Perkins, and Caulfield. Okay. Got it. Um, so he was, okay, got he was it. the four. And, and, and they had actually, the they'd already that. started the firm. Right. So uh, he was the fourth person, although he was still junior. And, okay. And they ended up just, when, when he made partner, saying, hey, well, you know. We'll add the B. Add the B. <laughs> nice. Add the B. And that's nice. funny because they've actually gone back to just KP. I know. I was actually just thinking about <laughs> so that. So they removed I was just, the right. CB. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, no, it's, I mean, he actually <laughs> didn't. He's like, it is what it is. I don't care. Right. Um, <laughs> um, did your mom work in technology? So they met through work. She was a headhunter. With If anyone knows my mom, and we could definitely talk to my mom, she's an entrepreneur badass in her own right. Um, she was doing headhunting. She's probably the most personal person I know. She's probably the most convincing person I know and and, and on anything. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, I, I think she was probably incredible at that back in the day. But they right. met through work originally, and then through dad, like basically like recruiting, yeah, for maybe uh, yeah, yeah. portfolio companies, yeah. Stuff like and that. my mom was living in San Francisco, and I was living in Mill Valley. And my dad wanted to date her and asked her out, and she said, "I'll only date you if you move out of Mill Valley back to San Francisco." And he's like, "It looks like I'm doing that," and right. that was the start of that. So, right. um, at what point did you realize? Like, at what point as as a kid were you like did did the idea of like Silicon Valley and tech startups and like financing those companies like when did that become like something that you could understand and were you interested in it yeah it's so funny because i think only in retrospect do you realize how much exposure we had but as a kid your world is like your town like you're not like aware of what's going in the rest of the world right you're just and so it's almost until we got older that you have that appreciation for how lucky you were that you were in a place where all this was happening and you were exposed to all this at such a young age. Like, it's just an extreme baby luck, right? Like, you just happened to be born where you were. Right. Um, so I think it was later on in life, but what I always think about is how my brother and I were just obsessed with starting companies and just making money any way we could when we were little. Hmm. And I think back and it's like, it's not like they pushed us to do that. So I don't know if it was innate or it was just nurture hmm. or it was just around it, but like from literally like four years old on, you know, I was collecting tickets to my brother's shitty play that he put on in our house and like charging parents to watch the show. (laughs) And then later we were cutting mistletoe out of the trees in Woodside and selling those at Roberts for like, you know, I think it was like one for $5, two for eight, three for 10 or whatever it was like no matter and paper routes, you know, whatever it was, we were just obsessed with like, you could, if you created something that a market or a person needed, you could charge them for that. And so, you know, I guess the, the short answer to your question is I think it took time uh, for us to really have the perspective uh, to appreciate that. But I think the exposure was kind of probably constant. Right. 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 Um, and just so folks know, like at, at my understanding is like back then and maybe actually you probably maybe didn't even know this at the time. But now it's like through historical lens. Uh, Kleiner was like the the firm. At one point, right? Like through the, basically, certainly through the 80s and 90s. Is that right? Like it was like Kleiner or Sequoia. Like there weren't, it wasn't like it is today. There were there were not that many venture capital firms, correct? Yeah. And, well, they, were, think, and they were kind of like a, like one of the top of the top firms. Again, having grown up in a house with a dad working at the firm, we had no clue. Right, right. Um, right. Other than the fact that we knew we were very lucky and grew up very comfortably and like, obviously had a ton of uh, privilege growing up and we were, we recognized that, but like, you, you know, your dad comes home and he's dad. Yeah. Like you're, yep. you're riding, I, I'm going to ride around his back playing what we call dino riders as a kid. Like that's my lasting memory. It's not like Kleiner's investment in Amazon. <laughs> um, and I think it's twofold, right? Like right. one, there was less firms doing it. There's just way less firms. Yeah. And then two is, you know, they were in a bunch of companies that were foundational, like either full platform shifts or like the foundational companies of the internet. Um, and so, yeah, they had a, an incredible run. Yep. Um, so you went to, you left for college? Yep. Um, yeah. 
so went to Colorado for Colorado. Or, okay. Yep, went to Boulder. Yeah. Um, you know, primarily just wanted to ski. Yep. Uh, couple that with environmental science. I was like obsessed with environmental stuff. I loved being outdoors. I literally had classes where we'd like go into the mountains of Colorado and catch squirrels and like tag their ears and try to measure how many squirrels per acre there were. And the classes were ridiculous, but they were so awesome. Um, so yeah, Colorado for four years and then moved back to uh, SF. This was 2009. So obviously economy crashed, but um, weirdly enough, clean tech, which was like the intersection of technology and like my passion for environmental stuff, there was actually a lot going on in clean tech at the time. Tons of solar companies. There were fuel cell companies. Um, there were biofuel companies. There was actually a lot of types of solar. There was residential, commercial. Um, there was these big ones that, that use mirrors to collect. I think it's called solar thermal. Um, There's a ton going on. I ended up finding a job in that world, which is actually getting a ton of funding at the time. When, when at what point did you consider being an investor? Like, I feel like, you know... Many folks look at their, I mean, I did, right? And you're like, either I definitely want to do that or I want to go as far away from that as humanly possible. Oh, when your parents do something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and so, like, I'm not sure if you had that moment but or that same thinking, but was there a moment where you're like, okay, actually, yeah, what, what got you interested in the investing piece? So, um Look, I know my parents are going to listen. Kudos to my parents on this one. Uh, they never pushed us to investing, ever. Right. If anything, they just said, do whatever the hell you want to do in life. Like, it's your life. You got one. Figure out what your passion is and go do that. Um, you know, to an extreme state. Like, my mom, to her credit, when I graduated college, she's like, go be a ski bum for a year. Like, you'll never be able to get this year of 22-year-old back. Go move to some mountain town and, like, be a ski bum. And I didn't list her. I was like, I need to start my career. It's terrible, terrible decision. Totally should have done that. Yeah. Um, so I, they, I also got, actually, similar advice, and I never did. Yeah. I always regretted it. Yeah. It's like, why was I so eager to start yeah. a career when I had 70 years to do it? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they pushed us to do whatever we wanted. I think the reality is if you have a parent or a friend or a mentor or an uncle or aunt or whoever – that does something that they love and you see that love and passion for it, then I think naturally it's going to be interesting to you, right? And that could be whether it's business or it could be music or it could be whatever, but you see someone love something and it looks awesome. I mean, every time I go to a musical and I see an epic singer, like I want to be a singer, right? Like <laughs> this is natural human behavior. Yeah. And so I think I always knew like investing would be something that I might like, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it's a genetic thing. I don't know, but, uh, ended up obviously getting into it like earlier than I thought I was going to. And we can talk about what that journey was like. Yeah. How did you, um, I well, what was, was, you know, or maybe you were doing it like on the side a little bit or something. Yeah. How did that, how did that start? So, so people told me to go get like operating experience, like right. regardless of what you want to do, go get operating. Like right. This idea of like go get operating experience, go get operating experience. And we could definitely talk about that because I, I have sense of now believe that that is bullshit. Yeah. And, th- and it feels <laughs> even like that advice has maybe changed a little, I hope so, a little bit I, in recent years. Cause I, 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 I was always intrigued with the venture business and, but I too was at a startup for a while and, and, the prevailing, I feel like the prevailing advice through 2009, 2010, 2011 was like you needed to be an operator and a founder to be a good investor. Maybe, and that was maybe popularized by Andreessen and some, some yeah. others. But yeah, totally. So that's what you did. I mean, yeah, you that's did what that, I did. You, went, you worked at, at so, so I worked at this company for four yeah. years. I mean, yeah. by all accounts, it was an incredible experience. Like yeah. it went, went from a relatively small company, 2 million revenue, 250 million revenue, like 50 people to 400 people, ended wow. up IPOing. Like it was a great experience. Wow. That is. But in retrospect, like my belief is if you want to, if you figure out what you want to do in life, which is hard and and you have to get lucky to find out what you want to do early in life, like you should keep trying stuff until you find what you actually really like. My belief is like, if you, if you kind of know what you want to like, or you think you want to know, you should go do that. Right. It's like, like a weird analogy, maybe to use like sports, um, would be like, if you wanted to be a professional baseball player, it's like, Oh, go be a manager of baseball teams first. And then maybe you could go play. It's like, just go do the thing you think you want to do. Um, so, so when I, after that first company moved to New York City, I was working for a company out here, which great company, but the space didn't interest me that much. I mostly picked it because um, of, of who was running it. I was inspired by them. And that's a whole other narrative where I think managers are actually almost more important than a lot of other things in terms of your progression in a career. But uh, I started doing angel investing, like really, really small checks when I was in New York. No idea what I was doing. Like obviously 
you know, had a leg up having been raised around it, but his experience didn't necessarily trans translate down right. to like doing seed checks in like today's world. And, you know, he does biotech right. and I was looking at tech stuff. And so this is like 2012 New York. There wasn't, I mean, there was stuff going on, but like it definitely wasn't like it is today. And so you were probably doing the same stuff when you were at Bayworks and stuff. Yeah, I was going yeah, to like we met, I think, around yeah, I was going to text, text stars demo yeah. days. I didn't know how to source deals. So like David Tish was running at the time. He was incredibly helpful. I was just like showing up to disrupts. Like there was all these big events here who, you know, probably in retrospect were dilutive in terms of the value, but I would go anyway. Um, and looking at that early portfolio, I mean, it's pretty, sh- pretty shitty. <laughs> uh, yeah I, I don't want to learned a ton mostly about process and how to even like look and evaluate a company and, and what makes a good founder yeah. and I think you're just building that pattern recognition that takes time um, but that's yeah that's how kind of slowly creeped into yeah. it what were some of the like not not don't you don't need to mention a company <laughs> but like what were some of like the biggest like noob mistakes that you probably like wouldn't make today I think my biggest learning if I look back, I've been at SUSE for six years, and then I did two years of angel investing before SUSE. So over those eight years, I think the single biggest thing that's changed in my way I invest is I used to believe there I should try to quantify investing into a checklist or into like checking boxes, right? It mm. has to have all these things to make an investment. And I've now realized that like that is a terrible way to invest, especially at seed. And so Back then, I was I didn't know what I was doing. So obviously, as someone who's entering something and you know someone who likes to solve problems and think creatively, like you try to come up with a framework. Like yep. I'll build a framework around investing, and then I'll iterate on that framework over time. All these different levers and try to whatever. Alex and I, by the way, have created about five of those yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, last, I have two over the last like, eight years. I should go back to my old and notebooks. We've thrown and everyone away. Published yeah. all of them. Yeah. And now I think my realization is like the best early stage companies of I think of all of our successes we've had as angels, uh, my team collectively and at SUSE, the, the team or the company had like one or two incredibly special things about them that overly made up for the boxes that weren't checked at the time that like quote unquote gave them like the superpowers or whatever. And we hmm. can talk about what some of those are, but that to me has been the greatest learning. And so some of those early angel bets at the time, they seemed reasonable, but the reality is like there just wasn't anything cr- truly special uh, about them hmm. and they just kind of struggled, right? There wasn't any big breakouts. And as you know, and, and we can talk about like venture truly is driven by the outliers. You hear that before you go into the business, but it never really sets in until you look at your own portfolio and your own numbers and hmm. you're like, holy shit, it really is driven right. by the outliers, right? Right. And like most, most of it just, doesn't doesn't move matter. the needle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now all those companies are important in their own right, uh, etc. But like from a purely financial, crude-looking standpoint, venture. Yeah. We could talk about you know happy to walk through some of the numbers of like how stark that can be. But. Yeah. Um, so you you did some angel investing just basically solo, right, for the yep. first couple of years, and um, I think we met around that time, and you were like building relationships in the in the community. I guess you were in New York too. Yeah, is, so I was living here 2012 to 2015. Right. Like, drove, I, like when I left that company in SF, and So what I does realized, that mean most of your investments were here? Like, yeah, how yeah. did you, yeah, yeah how did you think here. about that from a, like, you obviously grew up in the Valley. And, yeah, yeah. Um, when I left the company in SF, I, I realized I needed to leave this place. I've been here forever, and if I don't right. leave now, I'll never leave. So I just packed my car up and drove to New York City, skied my way across country for a month, moved here, didn't really know anyone, so really had no context for the city. was very intimidated by it. It's the best city in the world, obviously, now. Yep. I, now I now know that. Oh, um, but, uh, yeah, didn't know anyone. And, and the I didn't know what I was doing on the angel side. So, like, most of the companies were here, but I had no strategy. I didn't intentionally think, like, oh, should I build a distributed portfolio? And, like, should it be over multiple years? I, I didn't think about any of that. It was just, like, meet companies and, like, put super small checks in interesting ones and see what I can learn. Mm-hmm. Um. I wonder if we had any co-investments from that era. Maybe. The cap tables I remember back then were like two institutional firms and then like 75 random names you've never heard yeah. of. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, that was also the – there was a lot of the like party round. Yeah, I mean I think if you were raising then. a company in New York in 2012, 13, you just scrounged together capital yeah. where you could and it was a bunch of people writing like 5 and 10K checks. Yep. And then like a couple of the early institutions here who are yep. now big, you know, well-known. But yeah, it wasn't – it's not that long ago that it felt more nascent here. So how did you go from Angel to, to Sousa? I met the team that became the founding team at Sousa, which was Leo, Seth, and Eva. Um, kind of through a circuitous route of friends, work friends, social friends, whatever. 
And we were all different ages, different stages in our careers, but like thinking about the same thing, which was we were all doing angel investing. We were all thinking about that every minute of the day. Like hmm. I was truly obsessed with thinking about startups, companies, the whole process of investing, what I was learning, cap tables, all the documents, all the terms. Um, and you were all just basically informally collaborating. You were friends. Yeah, we and, were like yeah. an informal syndicate of angels who would look at deals, talk about them, and then the people that liked it could invest and the people that didn't didn't have to. And then it's eventually a great way the to learn together. Yeah. And then eventually the, and, and I would recommend that to anyone. I think being an angel today in a lot of ways is easier in that there's so many ways to learn. I mean, you have FRC's angel track and you have angel list syndicates that can put leverage behind your capital and there's a lot more online material around it. And it's also harder today because there's just so many companies and so many people doing it. Um, but that, that's what we did. And I think getting a group together is a really powerful way because the reality is everyone has a blind spot and you can augment that with other people. So we would look at stuff together and we all were very different people and eventually had this conversation of, hey, this is actually really fun. Everyone's like, I kind of want to do this full time. Maybe we should all leave and start SUSE. Look, in retrospect, it was a terrible idea. Uh, we had known each other for a, a relatively very short amount of time. Mm. Um, were you all here in New York? No. We were in three cities in okay. the U.S. We didn't spend that much face time together. I was in New York. My partner, Leo, was in SF and even Seth were in L.A. So we were a distributed team that didn't know each other that well, that didn't have an investing track record together, really, that were trying to raise a fund, first fund. Mm. Terrible, it's a terrible then, decision. But you raised it. <laughs> Took us eleven months to okay. raise twenty-five. Okay, um, so that I mean, you got there. I I remember our CRM was fifty institutional meetings. We had fifty no's, so we wow. didn't, we didn't land a single institution. Okay, and it was just a we ended up with seventy-four investors. Yeah, so it was like um, the startups you were investing in. in yeah, long list of uh, great of known and unknown names. <laughs> great, so everyone was tapping their friends of friends of friends and. Um, and I think the one thing, a couple of things we did that to any new manager thinking about starting a fund I would recommend is one, we started investing right after we raised a little bit of money. So we close on that capital and just start putting it to work because then we could build a portfolio where like the next LPs could actually look at a track record. They could say, hey, these companies fit the thesis these folks are saying they're going to go invest in, fits the type of companies, the valuation ranges, the ownership percentages, like it makes your strategy real. Mm-hmm. And that was huge. Yeah. Um, There's a huge difference between pitching the story or totally. having a pitch deck and then actually being able to like point to yeah and, and, and also you know kudos to all of our first fund investors i think at the time you know looking back on in retrospect like that that was a pretty tough thing to back a group mm. of people that kind of knew each other didn't have a track record and was a first had a little bit of fund. angel track record a little bit of angel maybe track not realized but yeah yeah our, our partner seth definitely had the longest i mean he had some some real companies because he started going to yc in 2009 but the rest of us you know, it was pretty early, and as we know, like it takes a while to know if companies are good. Mm-hmm. So we definitely, most of us hadn't been investing long enough to know if any of these companies were really good yet. Um, it probably benefited you because you didn't know either way. Yeah, good, good data can ruin <laughs> a good story. Yeah. Um, what uh, I'm curious, I'm I'm curious how you each augmented each other. So you didn't know each other that long, but you know, I mean, you're still working with. Seth yep. and uh, and Leo. Yep, I think Eva has moved on. She's she runs Fika. She runs Fika. Yeah, great fun. Yeah, um, and so she's doing well. What what, um, yeah. How did you augment each other? I'm curious, just you personally. Like, where where do you think often your blind spots are? What's your superpower, and how does that compare to your other partners? Yeah, it. I'll start with a funny quote. So. Fred from Horsley, to his credit, when we were raising our first fund, I remember... This is uh, Horsley Bridge. Horsley Bridge. Uh, uh, amazing, yeah. yeah. Uh, fund of Funds LP and based in San Francisco and in, in almost all the big top good funds. I remember getting an intro to him, and this was kind of like the highest profile LP intro I'd gotten at the time. And he responds to the email, and I think he'd be okay with me saying this straight up. He goes, the answer's no, uh, but I'll meet with you anyway to hear your story. And so wow. I deeply respected that. Oh, because so it was like, it was past, it was past. It was past before meeting. Before meeting. Because of the things that I just said, which like were an yeah. incredibly risky investment. Yeah. Um, and it felt amazing because so many LPs actually dragged us through this long process, institutions, only to pass for reasons they knew at the start. They'd pass mm. for like, oh, because you guys are in different cities. We're like, but you knew that meeting won. Right. <laughs> like super weird. Right. Um, and now sitting on the other side of the table, having to pass on entrepreneurs, I often see other VC pass emails with total bullshit too. Yeah. Um, so anyway, met with Fred, passed, but we got to know each other. Um, they ended up coming in our second fund and being our anchor, and they've been our anchor in our third fund as well, and they've been fantastic partners. But I'll never forget one of the quotes they say when they committed to our second fund. They're like, look, we are so excited to anchor this fund and become LPs. 
but to be honest, you guys are a strange group of people. And I think what you meant by that is like the, <laughs> they said that when they committed yeah, to investing. The, the, the right. three, like Seth, Leo, and I, um, are are very different individuals. Um, I always say my partner Leo loves three things in the world. He loves his feral cats that that don't allow him to pet pet them. Very strange. Um, his wife, who he deeply adores, and she's incredible. And venture capital, like those are the three things that his passion is mm-hmm. life. Like he's really heavy on Twitter. He's incredible yeah. at it. Um, yeah, his blogger, online presence and yeah. blogging, and and that's kind of where he excels. Is that and he's he's you know an engineer background, uh, extremely first principles, su- deeply rooted in logic over values traction and where the business is today and just does this make sense uh, more so than the person um i'm a little bit in between i definitely kind of value where the company is today the traction of the business all those things that go into evaluating the current company but i also heavily heavily weight team i think team is extremely important um I think one of the greatest gifts I got from my mom was like a generally good ability to read people mm. and get along with people, kind of be a chameleon. One of my strengths is can kind of get along with any type of person, whether it's a salesperson, kind of engineer, whatever, um, can can try to get along with them, which I think is actually an underappreciated aspect of venture capital today yeah. in a market where there's so much capital, like winning a deal. And we can talk about the kind of the three pillars of winning a deal, in my opinion. But one of them is just, do you get along with the entrepreneur? Yeah. And how do you make them feel in every touch point with them? Um, and then my partner, Seth, over-indexes almost 90% on founder and mm. d- totally kind of discounts where the business is today. Like, you're doing $200 million in ARR. He doesn't really give a shit. Because if, you, if he thinks you're not an entrepreneur that can, like, take this thing to $100 million, then the way venture math works is, like, that's not a bet we should take. Mm. And so between the three of us, I just think we're pretty well balanced across all those. Um, and so when a company comes in, we can index across all those different factors mm. in a way that, you know, we've actually looked back at all the investments we've made. We rank every investment with the time we make a decision. We use the Google uh, interview voting ranking system. Indiv- how does that work? So it's a, it's a one to four. Okay. Four means so you do have a framework after yeah, all. Yeah. Well, no, this is the voting to do a deal. Okay. Not checking boxes about a company. Okay. Got it. Um, and actually, it's interesting if you look at all and of each of you. Every time you yeah. make a decision, you guys each vote. Every time a company comes to a partner meeting, yep. we we log votes. Okay, so we have a large data set beyond just our own portfolio, which is any company that's ever made it to partner meeting. And what's interesting is like the collective vote as a team is a far better indicator of success than any of our individual scores. Like the collective team makes far better decisions than any individual. So which is, is that right? So when you look back at at the at like some of your biggest successes, like yep. everyone loved it. Yeah, there is um, it is more statistically significant that the team's average vote is better indicator of success in a company than any individual. And so, like, we would be we are more successful than any of us would be individually, which is like mm. an interesting dynamic amongst like when you try to build a team. I mean, that is the goal, and we finally have the data that actually supports that. How does the voting work? So it's one to four ranking. Four is I'm for this and I would fight strongly for it. Three is I'm for it, but I wouldn't fight strongly. Two is I'm against it, but I wouldn't fight against it. And, and one is I'm blocking. And okay. so, our and if st- someone does a one, that's like not not going to happen. You that you literally can so yeah. unanimously yeah. you can block yeah. a deal. Yeah, the other two could be a four. Um, and you and you do this blind. Everyone, yeah, you can't see other people's votes. You do it blind. You do it after the partner meeting and after a long debate amongst the firm about the company. So you get the ability to talk your points, have that open dialogue about the business, and then and then we vote. And the schema is there is, like a threshold or something? Or? Yeah, the scheme is you have to have one person that's a four. Yeah, or close that makes to a sense. four. So you have to have someone fighting. Yeah, you have to have at least one other person supporting. So that could be a three or a four, and then you can't have the third person be a one. So you, so you could, can come up with four four four. You can have four three two. You can have four three three, right? But not four two one. Exactly. Or not four two two. Even four four one or four three one. You can. How have. many more combinations are there? There's a lot. <laughs> uh, um, the interesting. I mean, there's there's one broken part about the process, which is in venture voting a one is very dangerous because, as famously said in venture, yeah. right, you can make a hundred extra money and you can only lose one x. So yeah. blocking a company that becomes successful, man, that that's. Has anyone cool. ever done that? That suits them? I can't. I can't reveal that. Okay. Okay. Um, so, okay. So, so the first fund, um, you did get raised. It's twenty five million dollars. Uh, it's it's the four of you. Um, you had all been angels. So beyond just, I mean, it, you had a little bit of experience trying to find investments, and um, uh, but how did you? It's probably the first time you've ever been thinking about like a portfolio. Mm-hmm. Like 
portfolio construction? Like, how do you build a portfolio of companies together? Like, where did where did that learning start happening? Yeah. Or was there a very specific strategy up front and you just executed it? I think building that first pitch deck is where you start to realize, wow, I need a portfolio strategy. I need to think about a reserve strategy. How many port- how many companies is the right number? Right. What should our check size be relative to the average seed round today? What does that mean for our ability to get into good competitive deals? We hadn't thought through really any of that until we were like, how do you raise a venture fund? Oh, you have to make a deck. How do you make a deck? What are the components of a deck? And that's where we leaned upon. Like We were lucky that we had known folks in the market who had raised funds, um, we definitely got, you know, uh, learned from people who had done it before. Yeah. And obviously the LPs taught us a lot. Like when you go through that many LP pitches, yeah. you realize what they care about. Yeah. And, and you realize what's broken. I frankly love fundraising. Some people don't. I just I love it. Because um, you get to talk to all these really smart people. And they usually do other parts of the financial sector, but then just private equity and venture capitals. You get to hear about how smart people think about the whole finance system. Um, and specifically talking about venture, they're, they're breaking down how they think about portfolio construction or their biases. I mean, we share an LP and Sonana Capital. They're fantastic. They obviously overweight ownership. They believe you should have big mm-hmm. ownership at early stage. Their thinking has totally changed our thinking in, in a good way, right? You shouldn't always listen to all the opinions, but you can take all the data that everybody has and then formulate what works for you. I think the one thing we've realized is there's no right array or wrong way to build a venture fund. You just build what works for you, right? And that's from platform teams to boutique firms yeah. and whatever. So, Yeah. Um, what was that strategy for Susan 1? What did it end up being? So, or what, I'm curious, like, what was in the deck, and then what did it actually end up being? Yeah, I bet those were probably a little different. We were actually pretty good at sticking to plan. So after all those discussions, one of the big realizations we had was small funds tend to outperform, kind of point one. Point two is if you can scale your check size in the market with your brand, you're going to get into disproportionately a higher number of companies you want to, right, than you wouldn't, right? And the simple example there is, if you're writing a check that's way above your brand in the market, you're going to want to get into all these deals, but like there's not going to be room. There's other funds with bigger brands taking that check size that mm. you wanted. And so we felt very strongly that start small. 25 with four people was – yeah. Small. we were probably the only $25 million fund in the U.S. with four GPs. Um, and you do the math, right? 2% management fees. We're spitting off 500 k in total income. That's after everything, salaries, whatever. So – we decided 250k at the time. Seed rounds were kind of like a million and a half. The market has changed a ton today, obviously. Yeah. Um, we thought we could get 250k into deals. Like we couldn't write a bigger check than that. No one who knew we were. We had no brand, and so that's where we we're going to start. And actually, in our first pitch pitch deck, we actually had a 10 year vision for SUSE, which was fund one, fund two, fund three. Hmm. And the idea was to go 25 to 50 to 75, like very methodical, hmm. very linear. We're going to scale our check size uniformly amongst that, and we were going to scale our ownership percentages amongst that, and we're going to scale the number of deals we led from 20% to 40% to 60%. We had this very kind of like logical path of growth that I think LPs really loved hmm. um, because a lot of people that saw success with an early fund, they would jump to a much, much larger fund, right. and they would have adverse selection in the market. And so we had this slide that kind of laid out that growth plan, and actually what's funny is we've deviated slightly from it in, in terms of our last fund was slightly bigger than 75 but we, we stuck pretty close to it, right. and we almost hit our ownership targets exactly. We almost hit our percent of deals we led exactly. Wow. Um, the only thing we changed was in our fund one, we had a reserve ratio. We did For every dollar we invested up front, we invested $2 in the back end. The only change we've made is we've gone to a one-to-one model. Yeah. So more dollars early, uh, dollar cost average earlier. Um, so you truly look more like a seed fund. Yep. I think one of our criticisms of seed funds that are too large is – you end up having so much reserves that you actually look more like a Series A fund on on paper yeah. or a B fund or a B in fund some cases, on where yeah. you're putting the actual dollars to work. So yeah. that's the only change we made, and, that, like, and that's like kudos to some of our LPs, Horseleans, and on others who helped us think through that aspect, right? Um, but that's, that's really some, the only. That's actually amazing that you've. That's that the only change we made. Pretty much executed. Yeah. According to plan, um, obviously, and and you couldn't have really. So it has how has the market played into that? Because the market's changed a lot, but it sounds like you guys have, it hasn't. Yeah, it hasn't really affected too much of what you do. The market has changed a lot, but we believe that that discipline, which frankly, like it is a lot, it, it does take discipline to do these things. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, 
what made like the FRCs and the baselines and some of these other kind of perennial early stage funds successful is their discipline on a stage, their discipline on not growing too fast, right? And that is what has enabled them to be successful, in my opinion. Um, the market's changed a ton. I mean, that's the only deviation we did from our plan against due to a market change was this latest fund, instead of 75, which was our third fund, we did 90 for the early stage fund. And the only reason we did that is seed rounds have increased so much yeah. that our original plan of writing 750K checks in our third fund, it wasn't going to be a material enough part of the rounds today, which are three to four or two and a half to four, yeah. that we had to, to write a one point or 1.25 to even be in the conversation for lead or co-lead. Right. So that was the really the only um, change we've made to the existing market. Um. From a firm perspective, like how have you evolved SUSE from fund one to fund two? I mean, beyond just check size and number of companies and stuff like that, how do you think about, curious how you're thinking about how you've built up the actual firm has evolved? Yeah, it's a great question. So, because you don't have a big platform team and, no, you know, uh, it's still you, Leo, Seth as the partners. Yep. Um, Yep, Maybe so, have a couple other folks working there, but it's it's a small team. Yeah, yeah. I think we had we've had we, we have con- conversations constantly about um, what type of firm do you want to be. Right. I think our belief is sticking to the original plan is a really strong position. So don't get chased in too many directions. There's a constant conversation amongst I think all funds, which is the debate of the first round versus the benchmark, right? The platform versus the boutique investment firm with just partners, right? I think we've erred more on the boutique investing firm with just partners, spending more of our time just investing, working with entrepreneurs. But I don't want to discount the value of platform and services because when done well, which I actually think not that many firms do well, but when you do it well, it's incredibly powerful. And so the way, the real inside baseball for our firm, we put all these ideas on the whiteboard of what we think we wanted to offer our portfolio in terms of services and stuff. And we tried to identify what are ones where we think they are high value, but also not commoditized already. And I think the short story is we have some of those in the works right now, not fully announced yet, but over this fund and the next fund, we'll start rolling those out. Um, As a simple example, I think, and we just talked about this right before we turned the mics on, which was I think venture firms have done a credible job at content, incredible job on like Twitter stuff, incredible job, uh, even podcasts becoming more popular. I think like video media, like really rich storytelling using video actually isn't that well done in a world where like that is the predominant storytelling yeah. medium and right. probably the richest storytelling medium. If you think about what's happening on YouTube or even some of the short form video, you're looking about TikTok, et cetera. Uh, I'm not saying like every VC should be on TikTok because I don't know if that's the right platform or maybe it is opportunity. Yeah, maybe. Um, but like that's an example of one where, you know, we just tested it out with one of our companies um, called Stored in Atlanta that we we collaborated on a video just to tell the story of that company. And it was awesome. They're using it in their marketing collateral. We'll publish it soon. And that was like a super fun project. So that's kind of how we're thinking about it. Um, more boutique and then looking for areas that we think like not that many people are doing it that could be really powerful for the portfolio. Um, what do you think of this market today? Um, yeah, I mean, it's toasty. It's, it's, it's crazy, right? Like how, how do you, so even, even, you know, given your guys' experience, you guys have been investing for, you know, uh, I don't know, seven to 10 years now. Yep. Um, you're not a first time fund anymore. Um, you have what sounds like amazing institutional LPs and hopefully you're going to do this in a long time. Like, but there are so many firms. Yeah. There are just so many. I mean, we, we think about this a lot. Like how do you, yeah. How do you, how do you think about the market today and winning and does, and maybe it doesn't matter. Like, does it, does it matter that, you know, you only win one out of every five deals. You, I'm, I'm not just making that number yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you win every deal. Yeah, but, no, I appreciate um, <laughs> Like, like how, what do you think that means for yeah. venture? So we, we talk how about do you it. win a deal, by the way, you told me you were going to, yeah, yeah. We'll me. talk about that. So yeah. first, okay. first question first, we, our opinions, like you can do two things about a hot market, an overhyped market, a lot of firm market, whatever. You can either like 
be bummed about it and talk about how much it sucks all the time or whatever. Or you can just be like, this is kind of good in that, like, if we are in business, like, SUSE exists because we believe entrepreneurship is the lifeblood of progress broadly, broadly defined in the world. And entrepreneurship is not just, like, someone starting a company. It's, like, it could be an employee in a company, like, taking risk and building something inside. It could be a social entrepreneur. It could be whatever, right? We broadly, like, believe entrepreneurship is powerful and the reality is entrepreneurship is people taking risks to like improve something in the world, right? And a lot of those things need capital. And so I kind of, you know, I and we take the optimistic view that venture is crowded right now because there's a shitload of opportunity. Um, venture specifically, if you look about macroeconomics, has become this like, you know, return generation engine Sure, right. the average performance of venture funds suck, but like, there's no question that technology is becoming more mainstream. It's driving more of the returns in the macro economy. I think it's partially because we've been built on the successes and the previous kind of shoulders of giants in the past that technology is now infiltrating every part of the entire economy. Like, I think you know, one of the things I believe that I'm not sure everybody does is I don't think this is a cyclical thing. I think this is the new norm. Hmm. I actually don't think this is going away. Hmm. And so as, a as in like just venture – has and will continue to grow as an asset class. Period. Yeah, look, like there's going to be if anything it could it could welcome a lot more capital. Look, o- over time, project the next 10-15 years out, there's going to be times when we're going to invest less capital per year than the year before. There is going to be minor dips and peaks, but the average trend line in my opinion is going to be up. Hmm. Um, and I think that's good. Like test more ideas in the world, build more things. Some stuff's going to work, most stuff won't, but the only way to actually build like game-changing companies whether it be in enterprise software, healthcare, or whatever, um, is going to be to try all these things. And so our opinions, like we, we are, we're excited by that. I think it makes our job more fun. There's more things to look at. Um, I don't know. We try to take the optimist view of it. Um, now your question around how do you win a deal is, is a good one as coming out of that, because the reality is like as an individual, that's the macro as the individual fun. It is harder. Yeah. There's, there's no, there's no question. There's, there's very, it seems like well, maybe if you go back to the Kleiner days of old, like they would find some founder off the beaten path. No, everyone would come no to them, one, or everyone, everyone would come, come to them. them, and 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 there weren't that many folks to compete with. And totally, they would give them a term sheet, and you know they could price it however they business wanted, plans were probably. shipped to them, right, in packages, right, right, and you would kind of read it and evaluate, it. right, um, and then set the terms however you please. Yeah, so, totally, <laughs> totally. So, yeah. so now, I mean, it it seems. It, it it's I imagine it's very rare for a founder to walk into Susa and that's the only firm that they're chatting with. So there's almost that actually happened to us last week. Someone wow. knocked on their door. We opened and we said, "Hey, can we help you?" We, we didn't know who they yeah. were, and they're like, "Oh, hey, are, are you guys a venture capital fund?" Yeah, and we're like, "Yeah," and they're like, "Well, yeah. I I I want to pitch you my business." Right, we should have done the deal, and we're like, "That's amazing." Yeah, like, you just showed so what up. Happened? That's pretty epic. Um, well, we told him to send like at the time we His couldn't business take the plan? Yeah, <laughs> we were like, "Can you please right. email just email Chad right. Susan Ventures you, right. with your thing?" I was okay. like, "This pretty awesome." Um, <laughs> it felt. Great. Seems rare. Though. Seems rare. It's very rare. So it's other, only happened once. Other, yeah. So there's other venture firms. So yeah. So how do you? What you know? How do you? How do you win? Other than other than maybe price. Price is one way to win. Right. Right. So I think there's uh, the three most important things from from a winning standpoint. So winning, I, I take winning as you've already seen the deal, and every deal we see at seed now that we consider good is competitive. Hmm. Like, I'm not sure we've seen a company in the last year that we've competed on that we were the only term sheet. Hmm. So. In that world, how do you win? I think there's boils down to three things. One is speed. In our opinion, if you are not making a decision from first meeting to term sheet in a week or under a week, you're screwed. Wow. Okay. So you have to figure out all your internal processes. And, and does that mean – right. Does that mean that every partner at SUSE has – I mean, in theory, course. if everybody's voting, you all, all have to meet. You have to be – like that – the only way to achieve speed today is to develop internal processes that are extremely efficient and be hyper uh, sensitive to how you spend your time – and, and um, kind of annoyingly sensitive to what is the highest ROI of this next hour, right? So when I say to my partners, hey, cancel your next meeting, I need you to come in and meet this company, they trust based on what I've done at the firm mm. over the last six years that that is a good decision. Mm. Um, and we will do that. Mm. So I think speed is and do enormous. You all, do you all have to meet with the founder at the same time, like partner meetings out, or you guys can... You, you each meet separately, and then you vote separately. We literally do whatever we can to, to make it work. 
So sometimes it's separate, sometimes it's mm-hmm. all together. We prefer it all together because you can hear other people's questions. Yeah. And we think that's a better founder experience. But if it literally doesn't work, then we do it separately. Um, and I think that's the one area where newish funds, I still consider us newish, can outcompete the incumbents because I think most incumbent firms get a little bit slow. So I think speed is huge. Two is I'm, I'm the biggest proponent of your brand is what your existing founders will say about you. That is, in my opinion, that is the only brand of a venture capital firm. Um, when you ask what is the brand of a Sequoia, it's that you, no other words come to mind than, oh, they're the folks that backed PayPal and Amazon and, and Google and whoever. Actually, not Amazon, but Google and PayPal and whoever, right? That is like the brand of a venture firm. That, that is what you can – you want to get to a point where your portfolio is so well-known, it becomes your brand, right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we over-index on in, in introducing every new founder that we want to invest into as many portfolio founders as humanly possible, and we offer them to say, please do as many blind references as you possibly can. Because that is the only way where rubber hits the road. Like that's the, all the all the work you did day in and day out. It doesn't matter what you say as a GP, like you can't fake that part. Mm-hmm. So I think that's point two. And you'll just say, hey, look, you can go find all the companies on our website. Just call, just call. Yeah, email. You pick the companies. Go. Here's three yeah. we think that are in your space that are in your space or your geography that are particularly interesting for you to talk to. But literally pick anyone, and we'll introduce you. Because that's the only way that, like, in my opinion, I tell every single founder, like, you should do that for every single one of the funds that wants to invest in you. That's the best way to get to know a fund. Yeah, I, I do like that, uh, that that approach a lot. I think I think uh, actually David Tish, I think does that and they're they're incredible so the portfolio speaks highly right yeah because if you're if you're recommending the companies so i mean you can recommend i think like you said like like if there's specific founders that are relevant to that founder or or sometimes i even like uh if there's a company that could actually be like a a customer yeah yeah. they do a reference call but also they maybe like walk out with a customer too yeah yeah. those are pretty good it's huge but but um, you picking the companies is the same time when a, when an entrepreneur, like she or he, says, hey, talk to these three other companies. And you get on the phone. Or like, customers. Oh, or yeah, customers. No, that's or what I mean. The, yeah, yeah, they're yeah, customers. Yeah. And it's like, oh, how do you know the founder? Oh, it's my sister. Yeah. And you're like, oh, well, that's that's a helpful data point. It's not as helpful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, we think it's the same way. And what, and so, the, the, <laughs> those, are the, those are the two. Uh, and then the third for us is um, – the third for us is – uh, how you make someone feel. And so we talk about this internally. It's literally in all of our pitch decks. Like what we want, we call the SUSE experience. We are big, big believers in how you make an entrepreneur feel in the process of getting to know your firm. And this goes beyond the questions you ask, but this is like the interpersonal stuff. This is like how you treat them. This is how quickly you respond. This is how on, you're on time to the meeting. This is how much you prepared for the meeting. Like every single one of these little things that leads it leads a founder with a founder experience that we think is invaluable to winning a company, um, and in our opinion, and we've pulled our founders on this, they say like that level of experience they had, like the emotional mm. thing, is a huge indicator of who they end up picking. Mm. And so we've spent a ton of time internally, like drafting what is the full touch point, what does every interaction look like. A simple example of this is right after we meet. I may be I'm revealing things I shouldn't from a competitive dynamic, but like. Right when we're introduced to a company, we send them this like really well-designed one-pager, which is our portfolio, exactly our process that they'll be going through with us end-to-end, um, the things we care about, what our thesis is, how we think about the world and companies. And, like That's just a simple example, but like draw that out, right? Yeah, um, I love that. So those are I the three. That. SV Angel used to do that back in the day. They're Maybe. good. They used to send like a blurb. Yeah. They and now like Kevin about, still does it as an angel. I know. About like the whole firm and who yeah. they are. And I, I always liked that. Um, Susa four five six seven eight nine ten. Yep. Um, well, I guess you mapped out the first three. Yep. Right in the original deck. Yep. Now you're on the third. So, like, what do the next three look like? This is the plan. The plan is more of the same. We think seed funds can't exponentially keep growing, so we are going to actually slow down the pace of growth on fund size to the next fund. Um, we are a ninety million dollar early stage fund this time. I think the next fund could reasonably just be a hundred. Um, I think once you get too much capital, we talked about some of the, the things that uh, – the difficulties there. The one thing we launched the last fund, which is new for us, is our first opportunity fund, and that is allows us to invest in our big winners. In the past, we've done SPVs and like the Robinhood and Flexports in the portfolio, and so this allows us to have a dedicated vehicle to go do those. I could see us doubling down on supporting our companies well past the A, B, C infinitely. Like We think if you get lucky enough to partner and with a really, really good company – 
put as much capital as you possibly can in. And so I think we'll stay extremely focused, our entry point at seed, and then raise pools of capital, allow us to back the very best companies in the world for as long as we possibly can back them. Amen. Um, thank you, man. I thank really you. appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having um, me. Thought it was great. And uh, um, yeah, a lot to aspire to, actually. I'm Thanks. definitely going to go make that rating system. <laughs> I appreciate you having <laughs> me. This is awesome. Thanks, man. This podcast was created by Notation. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Carta for being our title sponsor. I'm sure you're familiar with Carta. Carta changed the way private companies manage their cap tables and 409A valuations. Companies and venture firms like Robinhood, Flexport, and USV use Carta to manage billions of dollars in equity. Carta also offers fund administration services for investors now. We use Carta at Notation and recommend it to all our companies. Save time running your back office with Carta. Get 10% off at carta.com notation. Terms and conditions apply. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP.